Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 58. Today, we tell the story about the events that unfolded in the moments after the president expired, both at Parkland, on the way to Love Field, and then, finally, as the presidential entourage begins to board Air Force One. We borrow much in today's story from the events that were chronicled by award-winning author Robert Caro in his epic series of books about Lyndon Johnson, and particularly The Passage of Power. In these chaotic moments, right after the death of the president, our democracy makes a smooth transition of power, despite the tragic circumstances under which it was conducted. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 58. Lyndon Johnson stood there near a cubicle. Down the hallway, just a few feet away, President Kennedy had already passed, and the events had already occurred that would give Johnson the presidency. The news delivered by Kenneth O'Donnell was stunning, but nevertheless, Johnson was president now. Years later, Johnson would recall a very simple fact about that moment. He would say that everything was in chaos. We were all spinning around and around trying to come to grips with what had happened. But the more we would try to understand it, the more confused we got. But somehow, instinctively, he knew what had to be done. No matter what form of grief he was feeling at that moment, he knew that the country needed leadership. He would recall an old Texas saying, there is but one way to get the cattle out of the swamp, and that is for the man on the horse to take the lead and to assume command and to provide direction. And in the period of confusion after the assassination, I was that man. What a stunning roller coaster of power. Some three years earlier, Johnson was one of the most powerful leaders in the U.S. Senate ever. Then, For three years as a vice president under Kennedy, he had lost most of that authority and power. But suddenly, once again, power returned, and now he was the most powerful man in the world. Oh, there was fear, all right. As he would describe it, he was catapulted without preparation into the most difficult job any man could hold. His duties would not wait a week or a day or even an hour. He had joked much earlier in Kennedy's presidency that the reason for being vice president is that presidents die in office. That macabre fact had now once again come to fruition. It was a line that later would spawn circumspect thoughts by conspiracy theorists, some of whom would point right at Johnson as the man having the most to gain from Kennedy's death. Motive in their minds for effectuating or helping to effectuate the assassination, or at least knowing about the plot and doing nothing to dissuade the collision of events. 
Whether any of that was in the realm of possible will be left for a discussion in later episodes, but for now, it was a seed that was yet to be sown. The world was raw with the echo of the shots just taken in Dealey Plaza. The ringing was still in the ears of those who had been there. Up until the president was announced dead, there hadn't been much attention given to the new president. Oh, he was the new president, all right. So far, the narrative in the story surrounded the awful and tragic circumstance that President Kennedy had driven directly into, a storm that started at a spot on the motorcade route that had become nothing less than a shooting gallery. As Johnson's car raced to Parkland, he was almost smothered by Secret Service agent Rufus Youngblood. Among the heroic moments of that day was the immediate response of this young agent and his unflinching commitment to the life of Lyndon Johnson. That smothering happened in a nanosecond after the first shots rang out, and it stayed that way until they got to the hospital. Johnson felt the pain of a large man laying on top of him, a virtual human shield, a man who unflinchingly positioned his own body to take a bullet should it be directed at Johnson. Johnson had a reputation as a bit of a physical coward. Over the years, he had suffered from indigestion, and in 1955, his doctor told him that suddenly the indigestion was no longer, and it was actually a heart attack he was experiencing. That event in 1955 was serious enough that the doctors thought there was a reasonable chance he might not make it through. But he did. And the rest is history. As Johnson lay there on the floor of the back seat of the limousine with Youngblood smothering him, Youngblood would tell Johnson that the president must have been shot and that they were headed to a hospital. On the frantic drive over, Youngblood continued to bark instructions at Johnson telling him that once they got to the hospital, they were going to head straight inside and no one was going to stop them, and that he and Mrs. Johnson needed to stick with him and the other agents in a close formation. Johnson would answer back, Okay, partner, I understand. Soon, they would be exiting the car surrounded by four agents with another agent, George Hickey, behind them holding an AR-15, which is an automatic rifle. They were tightly behind the presidential limousine, and in the moment after the president's car arrived, it had taken some time to coax Mrs. Kennedy out of the car so that they could take the president inside, and that bit of a pause had allowed Johnson's car to catch up. And as the Johnsons rushed to make their way inside the hospital, they passed the president's limousine, and they could see. They could see Jacqueline still holding the president. They all dashed into the hospital quickly, with the first order of business being to find a room where they could secure Mr. and Mrs. Johnson. They hustled down the corridor, twisting and turning until they finally found a room that Youngblood and the Secret Service agents thought they could make secure. It turned out to be the minor medicine room at the hospital, and it was a room that had been carved out of a larger room simply by making a partition out of white muslin curtains that hung from ceiling to floor. It was actually a minor medicine room that was in use at that very moment, with a nurse taking care of a patient. She and the patient were quickly escorted out of the area as the agents frantically closed shades over the windows in the room and made the room as secure as it could be. 
There were cubicles in the room, but fewer places to sit, and agents secured a couple of additional chairs. In a minute, Lady Bird would be seated, but Johnson would remain standing. Lyndon Johnson was doing his best to stay calm and keep his focus. He knew that the first order of business was to ensure that he had extremely loyal men physically around him at that moment. After all, he wasn't sure what was happening. Johnson asked the agents to go find Texas Congressman Homer Thornberry, who was actually riding in the motorcade. And they did just that. And then they would find Jack Brooks as well. Finally, Johnson's aide, Cliff Carter, came in and brought him some coffee, which Johnson drank. Youngblood directed one of the agents to stand out in front of the door and instructed him not to let anyone in unless he knew him or at least recognized the face and knew of him. He directed another agent to call headquarters back in Washington. Lyndon and Lady Bird, along with Youngblood, were immediately concerned about the safety of the vice president's daughters. Both of them were in school. Linda Bird was at the University of Texas, and Lucy, their youngest, was at her high school back in Washington, D.C., and in those days, it was not a custom or a policy to provide protection for the daughters of a vice president. Youngblood would immediately seek to secure their safety by immediately assigning guards to the two young ladies. For those 35 or so long minutes between the time they hit the minor medicine room and when they finally got word of what had become of the president, there was much silence. Johnson didn't speak much during that time. He appeared to be calm and collected. He would occasionally look directly at Lady Bird, and Lady Bird would occasionally look back at him. There is no doubt that they were communicating to one another, acknowledging the tragedy with no need of verbal explanation. The events themselves said all of it. They left everyone without words to describe it. These were nothing less than guttural moments. A white carnation was still placed in Johnson's lapel, reminding everyone of the bright and beautiful moments that were just a few minutes past, but now insignificantly placed in the rearview mirror of life. The word conspiracy was in the air, and it was spoken freely by many in the room in the situation at that moment. They shot the president and shot the governor, and who knows, Johnson may have been next. It was for this reason that the Secret Service wanted Johnson to leave as quickly as possible and get out of Dallas. Ray Kellerman had already spoken to them about that. Johnson was not ready to move. He would not leave without hearing directly from the most intimate of the president's staff and getting their direction on that point. Namely, he was looking for direction from Kenny O'Donnell. Eventually, he would get just that. As a selected few made their way in and out of the minor medicine room during those 35 minutes, it was as if each one entered with the possibility that they may have a definitive answer. Is the president going to make it or not? Is he alive or is he dead? Despite the president's unwillingness to leave the hospital, Agent Youngblood continued to advise the Johnsons to do so. Finally, the time in the minor medicine room reached 1.20, and Kenny O'Donnell appeared at the door across the room. It was time for him to deliver the news and to address Lyndon Johnson.
There's no way to recreate the look on Kenny O'Donnell's face as he made his way over to the new president. Inside those first few words, he would say, he's gone. There was more. From here on out, he would address Johnson as Mr. President. For more than one reason, it was a moment that would forever be seared into the memory of both O'Donnell and Johnson. It was as if this was a foot race with runners all lined up, and we had just heard the gunshot signifying the start of it. From that moment on, Johnson was in control. Johnson was known to be different in moments of crisis. He'd been calm and collected, but now he needed to make decisions and good ones because the world was watching. More information was coming in, and some that was critical in the thinking that was quickly developing at that moment particularly around the idea that what was unfolding was potentially a much larger conspiracy. In those few minutes, Johnson learned that six members of the cabinet, including the Secretary of State, Dean Rusk, and Treasury Secretary, Douglas Dillon, together with Press Secretary, Pierre Salinger, were not in Washington, but on a plane that was en route to a conference in Japan. They were at that moment, somewhere west of Hawaii. Later, Johnson would put it this way. He was disturbed to learn that half the cabinet was five time zones away, somewhere over the vast Pacific Ocean and altogether on the same plane. As these pieces of information were coming together, it was not hard nor unreasonable for everyone to be contemplating at that moment what all of this meant when it was collectively assessed. And that assessment had frightening possibilities. First, on a rare occurrence, you had both the vice president and the president together, and in a location that was outside of Washington. And on top of that, you had half the cabinet overseas. One couldn't avoid speculating about whether this conspicuous absence of a major portion of the executive leadership of the United States government a leadership team that was now all geographically missing from the Capitol. Well, it was easy at that moment to jump to the conclusion that something more nefarious might be in the works. Sixty years later, we tend to think of conspiracy as something that was drummed up by a group of fringe researchers or a few radical thinkers. But the truth is, it was a very real consideration assessed by the highest levels of government right at the moment of the assassination. The legitimacy of the topic in this context is without question. It was becoming clear that the possibility of a conspiracy was real and that they should take actions to move the new president to a more secure location and do it quickly. Johnson would ask about Mrs. Kennedy and Kenny O'Donnell, just as O'Donnell was urging the new president to leave Dallas, O'Donnell would tell Johnson that Mrs. Kennedy was not leaving Dallas without her husband's body. Johnson had made up his mind. He was not leaving Dallas without Mrs. Kennedy, and Mrs. Kennedy wasn't leaving without the president's body. So, the decision on timing, at least to the new president, now seemed straightforward, despite the advice that he was being given by the Secret Service and others. He directed Youngblood to get him to the plane but they would not leave until Mrs. Kennedy was with them. Youngblood got to work right away. 
he knew that there was risk in getting the new president to the airport, and they would have to leave the hospital using a different plan of egress, traversing different corridors than the ones that were used to enter the hospital. And they would separate Lyndon and Ladybird, and so they would need to drive in separate cars. They would shade the windows of the cars so that you couldn't see in. And all of this had to be done quickly. And it was. The cars would soon be waiting in the ambulance bays of the hospital. As Lady Bird would later observe about her husband in those moments, it's not that he wasn't willing to listen, but he was quick to decide. Before he left the hospital, Johnson would be approached by White House Assistant Press Secretary Malcolm Kilduff, who was now asking for permission to announce the president's death. Johnson would give him a quick no for an answer, saying, Do not make that announcement yet. Wait until I get out of here and back to the plane before you announce it. We don't know whether there is a worldwide conspiracy and whether they are after me as well. We just don't know. He would also ask to have the cabinet plane carrying the cabinet members turned around so that they could head back to Washington. Little did he know that they were already on their way back as they had already been informed of the horrific news. The small coterie of Johnson loyalists were gathered up quickly and were to be transported to the plane as well. Johnson told Cliff Carter not to leave the hospital with him, but to go and find Liz Carpenter and Marie Femmer and to bring them to the plane as well. He was scrambling, trying to gather his tribe for the ride back, and it was still small at that moment. He knew Jack Valenti was in the vicinity too. Valenti was a reporter at one point, and a few years back, he had written a favorable newspaper article about Johnson. In that moment, Johnson had taken a liking to him. He would also tell Homer Thornberry that he was to accompany the president to the airport, and he told others to ride in the car with Lady Bird. They would walk briskly, but avoid running as they left the minor medicine room and headed for the cars. Once in the cars, Johnson would give the order not to use the sirens with his car taking the lead position and going first, and then with Lady Bird's car following behind. As they rode through Dallas, some of the flags were already at half-mast, and it seemed at this moment that what had happened truly began to sink in for the new president. Seeing those flags at half-mast was an acknowledgement that the rest of the world knew, too. Now knew what he had already known, but for only moments himself. As Johnson headed back to Love Field, he would ponder the words of Kenny O'Donnell, and most importantly, the fact that Jackie Kennedy was not going back to Washington without her husband's body traveling with her. He also knew that the entire world would be watching his every move in light of what had just happened. There was no way he could leave Dallas and leave Jackie and the president's body behind. These thoughts were front and center, even as unknown to him at that moment, the fight over the dead president's body raged on back at Parkland. It didn't take long, and the Johnsons were back at Love Field, staring at Air Force One, and immediately Johnson exited the car and practically ran up the staircase to the rear door of the plane on his way into the presidential quarters. Colonel Jim Swindle was piloting the plane. As they prepared to get underway, the original flight plan was to fly over Arkansas as they left Texas, but apparently there were tornadoes in the airspace. Later, 
Those tornadoes would necessitate alteration of the original flight pattern and require a climb to a higher altitude of some 41,000 feet, higher than the usual 29,000 feet that Air Force One would normally fly at. But they were going nowhere at the moment, not just yet, anyway. That moment, well, nobody knew just what was happening. The Air Force was on higher alert to provide additional security for Air Force One, including fighter jets stationed at various bases that were all on high alert themselves and in a position to be airborne in a moment's notice if any Air Force reconnaissance indicated the presence of any foreign flights or related danger. Various security measures were taking place across the nation and in other spots around the world. The Mexican border was being sealed in order to ensure that if there were conspirators, they would not be able to escape across the border, which was closest to the crime. The shock, the hurt, and the sadness, they were already beginning to ripple across the country at lightning speed. A showing of respect all across the country was beginning to emerge. People were expressing their grief together and alone and with tears and plenty of crying, and sometimes just the silence that comes with stunned disbelief. It was nearing the end of November, and the holiday season was in high gear. Christmas lights were already up in places like Manhattan and New York City, most of them beautifully decorated and illuminated for Christmas, and most of them dark that evening, as a show of respect for the fallen president. In terms of profound shock and consequence to the nation, this was the current generation's equivalent to Pearl Harbor. And because of the national security implications, the president's staff was careful not to reveal where President Johnson was or where he was going or where he would eventually be when he took the oath of office. The way the plane was laid out was that there was a sitting area toward the rear with six first-class-like plane seats and then a small bedroom with beds for the president and his wife. Johnson would tell Youngblood to make sure that the presidential bedroom was reserved for Mrs. Kennedy once she reached the plane. Then the president would pass the stateroom, and it was large enough, about 16 feet square, and it included a small sofa along with a table and four chairs. Crew members and some White House staff, including two secretaries, were watching the television set as the news began to pour in. The moment was nothing less than surreal. The Secret Service wanted the flight to get underway right away, but Johnson was not having it. So they began to increase the security on the plane, giving instructions for everyone to pull down the shades. It was warm inside the plane. Colonel Swindle had one engine already firing in order to provide some electricity for lights in the cabins. But that wasn't enough to provide any air conditioning. Usually, with the engines off and the plane on the ground, it was a portable air conditioner unit that would be connected to the airplane in order to provide air conditioning within the cabin. But the portable unit had already been removed in readying the plane for takeoff. So, as members of the traveling group began to board the plane and the wait began, Colonel Swindle would need to start the engines in order for the plane to begin generating its own air conditioning. Quickly, as they waited, Johnson would decide to huddle with the three Texas congressmen that he had asked to come with him on the plane. There were a number of decisions to be made, including where to take the oath of office, 
whether the president could take the oath right there in Dallas or whether he would need to wait until they got back to Washington, where they could perform a more formal ceremony in an appropriate setting that could be administered by the Chief Justice of the United States, and done in the same way that Warren had administered the oath to John F. Kennedy at his inauguration. The fact that a conspiracy was very much a possibility at that moment in the minds of the senior members of the government, well, it contributed to an overriding sense that they should effectuate the swearing-in of the new president as soon as possible to be done in order to ensure continuity of government. The last time a president had died in office was when FDR had passed and Harry Truman became president. In 1945, they had waited almost two and a half hours after FDR's death before Truman took the oath. They waited until they could get a suitable accumulation of cabinet members to be part of the ceremony. FDR passed peacefully in his sleep while he was in Warm Springs, Georgia, which was one of his favorite spots of repose. Johnson and his team would conclude that this circumstance was different, and it required a greater sense of urgency. Johnson was in a bit of a dilemma. He had told Youngblood to reserve the suite for Mrs. Kennedy, and yet, in light of the situation, he needed to make some very private and confidential telephone calls. He needed privacy. Whatever moment of sensitivity and decency that he had demonstrated in reserving the room for Mrs. Kennedy, he would soon revoke it. He would decide to use the room and to make his calls from there. And Youngblood had already sworn not to leave Johnson's side, so Youngblood would be in the room with him. Moments later, the president would be sprawled all over on the presidential bed. And, at least in one sense, the most outrageous and insensitive call that he made in those moments of decision on the plane was a call made to the president's brother, Robert Kennedy, the Attorney General of the United States. Johnson hated Robert Kennedy, and likewise, Robert Kennedy hated Lyndon Johnson. On the one hand, Johnson had a very real and practical reason for calling Kennedy. They needed legal advice and wanted to seek it from the highest authority in the government related to some basic questions associated with the swearing-in. Could it be performed in Dallas? Or was there a rule that required it to be done in Washington, D.C.? What was the exact wording that had to be used in the swearing-in? And finally, who could be authorized to administer the oath of office? It didn't, as a precept, become a call of condolences. In one sense, it was a very cruel reach by Johnson. Johnson would make the call to Robert Kennedy's home in Hickory Hill, Virginia, some 30 minutes after the president's brother had received the news associated with JFK's death. While these were critical questions to get right at that moment, even a modicum of humanity may have diverted them to another place in government where they could have been adequately answered. Certainly having these questions answered by the Attorney General himself, Robert Kennedy would ensure that they had come from the highest legal authority in the government. But for the answer to these particular questions, was that really necessary? Johnson had a reasonably good relationship with Nicholas Katzenbach, the number two man at the Justice Department underneath Robert Kennedy. Katzenbach would soon be in charge of it all, 
but at that moment he was still number two. And in later years, he too would acknowledge how wrong and how crass it was for Johnson to have made that call to Bobby Kennedy at that moment. As author Robert Caro points out, Johnson had a more strategic reason for calling Bobby. For Johnson, at that moment, taking the oath of office after the assassination of JFK, an assassination that took place on Johnson's home turf right there in Texas, would most certainly be viewed, at least by some, as an illegitimate elevation to the presidency. Having the Kennedys engaged in some way, in any material way, with the transition of power would help limit those issues. Johnson knew right from the start that this chain of events would ignite a malicious challenge to his presidency. And Johnson, the ever-strategizing politician, well, he wasn't just thinking about Bobby at that moment in terms of what part the Kennedys would play in the transition. In a few minutes and just a short time later, he would insist that Jacqueline Kennedy stand next to him as he took the oath of Office of the President on Air Force One. In what has become one of the most famous and iconic pictures related to the assassination, Johnson would stand there on Air Force One with his hand raised as the newly minted widow of the prior president looked on with nothing less than a terribly distressed and traumatized expression. When Bobby Kennedy picked up the phone and suddenly heard Johnson's voice on the other end, he was stunned. Years later, there would be some controversy that would develop around just exactly what was said on that call, what was said by both of them, and what was said in the series of calls that went on in the next and ensuing few minutes. There would be an initial discussion between the two, and Robert Kennedy would hang up and make a call to Nicholas Katzenbach to discuss the situation with him and get needed answers. And then he would call Johnson back. In later years, Johnson would discuss that initial call to Bobby and try to portray it as an attempt to comfort Bobby in his grief and do so by having him focus on the practical side of what needed to be done. And Johnson would imply that that was all ostensibly done to help Bobby. I guess in Johnson's way of thinking, this was in some sense a way to channel the grief. I have to admit, though, This seems to me a bit of an attempt by Johnson at revisionist history. Maybe it was true, but likely it wasn't. The hatred that these two men already had for one another made the call at that moment, particularly about those business topics. Well, it made the call seem to so many who subsequently learned about it appalling and totally inappropriate. It certainly was to Nicholas Katzenbach. Kennedy had stayed silent on the phone in the first call as Johnson rattled off a series of questions in this initial discussion that were about the particulars of taking the oath of office. Bobby was stunned by the call and the cumulative effect of the events that were now mounting. Losing his brother, losing the President of the United States was enough to put anybody down for the count. But it was even more to Bobby. He had just lost the person he was perhaps the closest to in life. And now, just minutes after receiving the news, he was being asked to function with a cool head focused on state business. And he was being asked to do it by a man he despised. Who possibly could have done that right at that moment? 
Who was Johnson to believe that it was even possible? It was cruel in every sense of the word. Johnson didn't like the silent response to the questions that he was getting from Bobby, and so he continued to press Bobby on the answers. Bobby didn't say it out loud to Johnson, but he was saying it to himself. What's the hurry? Why can't you wait just a few hours until you are back in Washington, D.C. to take the oath of office? Yet Johnson took the silence as a tacit approval to take the oath there in Dallas. Bobby would hang up and call Nick Katzen back and have a short conversation about the taking of the oath of office, and both of them agreeing that there was no hurry there, and that there was clear evidence that the presidency had already passed to Johnson, that the swearing-in ceremony was largely symbolic, and both Kennedy and Katzenbach agreed on the thinking that it would be better if they waited to bring the president's body back to Washington and had the ceremony there. Bobby would call Johnson back, but the second call was less about whether it was happening in Dallas. Johnson had already decided that it was going to happen there, right there on Air Force One, and now it was more focused on what the exact language should be. Bobby had clarified that hundreds of federal officials, including federal judges, were all authorized to give the oath. That would lead Johnson to quickly call for Judge Sarah Hughes to make her way to the plane. She would be the one administering the oath. The first time a woman would administer the oath to a president of the United States. And she did, using the simple words that Katzenbach had excerpted after going straight to his own copy of the Constitution and reciting over the phone the exact wording contained in Article 2, Section 1. A very simple and elegant oath that was a mere 37 words long. Not only would it be the first time in history that a woman would administer the oath to a man taking the office of the President of the United States, but it would be the first and only time in the history of the United States that a dead president and a living president would be on the same plane while that oath took place. Let us all hope and pray that this particular and peculiar history never again repeats itself. Thank you for listening to episode 58 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.